0: Hey, I'm Mike Bresson, the uh, uh, head of the MLP and Yield Co. tax practice at uh, Baker Bots. We've got a great group of folks here. I'll let go down the row and let them introduce the, themselves. You just want to start, Mary?
1: Sure. Um, Mary Lyman, executive director of the Master Limited Partnership Association. Angela Richards,
2: tax partner. Andrew Skirth.
3: Brian Carney, tax partner at Vincent & Elkins.
2: Greg
4: Matlock, uh, tax partner. Ernst & Young.
5: Uh, Ted McRae, I'm a managing director in the oil and gas industry practice at Deloitte in Houston.
0: Okay, we got new qualifying income regulations that were uh, just published uh, last month. Uh, Angela, they kind of were rolled out in a uh, non-traditional way.
2: Right, Mike. So, so typically what happens is the IRS issues a notice of proposed rulemaking. There's a comment period open on those on those proposed regulations. The IRS takes into account those comments. Final regulations are published in the federal register and they're they're final. So for the MLP qualifying income regulations, proposed regs issued May 5th, 2015. Significant comments from, from the industry, from the MLPA, the practitioners, and MLP common unit holders on January 19th, 2017 the IRS issues final regulations, effective as of that date, and I'll go into that later, um, scheduled to be published in the Federal Register on January 24th. On January 20th, President Trump issues a regulatory freeze, asking agencies to pull regulations that had not yet been published in order for the, the administration to review and approve them, And for regulations that were published but not yet effective to postpone the effective date on those regs, again, for uh, review and approval by the new administration. So on January 24th, 2017, um, to the surprise of of many, the qualifying income regs were published in the Federal Register, despite the regulatory freeze. Um, Now, this was not a mistake, I've been told by, by Mr. Bresson that the office of management and budget did review the publication and approve the publication of those of those regulations in the federal register and, and generally we're treating these regs as, as final now
0: great ryan are they final
3: they're final <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're you know if uh... our, our administrative <laughs> law experts say that regardless of the, the memo, the, the, the freeze was a, a memo from the White House Chief of Staff to department heads. That it had no force of law. It was a request. It wasn't even an order. It was a, it was a request, and if, if people, uh, there's one argument that is they followed the request, they reviewed it, it got approved. That, that may be totally right, but also, uh, according to our folks, even if they totally said, we don't like this guy, he's crazy, we never agreed with him we're going to finalize these regs once they get published in the final register they're final he can reopen it with a new regulation project but uh, but these are the current law um, effective for tax years that start after January 19th 2017
2: so. so for most MLPs that are calendar year taxpayers that would be January 1 2018
0: correct so what do we do what do we do during um, uh, 2017 then what's the law
3: there are, very, there are a few things. There's a transition period in the, in, the, uh, in the final regs that say, look, if you were doing it before and, and you had a PLR, that's fine. If you were doing it before and you were doing it on the basis of, uh, of, of advice of counsel and it was reasonable, then you know, that interpretation was reasonable, then, then you're, you're okay. So there are transition rules. There technically is a little gap. Um, that, that if, you know, what if something is okay under the final regs, you've never done it before, and, uh, and it was, you know, so that there technically is a little gap here between when they were published and when they're effective, but uh, and we asked for clarity on that in, in, from the IRS, and they said, look, in some regulations, we, we allow you to elect to apply final regulations early, and I said, here we didn't need to do that because that's only necessary when there are old regulations and you're you're kind of choosing which ones to apply. They said, we're this is their this is their official interpretation, and so in their in their mind, you can apply it early. And there is a there is a IRS policy against uh, anyone taking a position that's contrary to a uh, proposed or final reg. So theoretically, even though they're not officially uh, officially effective until next year. Uh, you can start to rely on them now.
1: Right, and aren't they also okay if, if what they were doing was okay under the proposed regs?
3: Yeah, there, there's another prong of the transition rule that is uh, if it was okay under their proposed regs and then they, they changed their mind and ripped the carpet out from under you. So this is the we tricked you into doing it leg of the transition rule. <laughs> uh, but I I don't know that there's anything that was okay under the proposed. Uh, yeah. It's mm-hmm. not under the final. So. Uh, although that's one of my favorite, that's my favorite of the transition rules. I don't know that it'll be applicable to anyone. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, Greg, what are some of the uh, what are some of the, some of the highlights that stand out to you from the, the new QI regulations? Sure. And
4: as Angela mentioned, there was a, a comment comment period and, and a pretty substantial number of comments. Many from this room and, and on this panel uh, submitted comments. Uh, and as, as opposed to the we kind of tricked you into it uh, approach, I think the final regs have kind of the reverse effect. There's a number of areas that weren't addressed favorably in the proposed regulations that we talked about, I think, last year uh, on this panel uh, that had some favorable treatment uh, under these final regulations. So uh, overall reaction is it's a marked improvement over the proposed regs. It's not perfect, uh, but there are, I think, more winners than losers in the final regs than there were in the proposed regs. Some of the highlights, and uh, start with the, with the primary highlight is uh, the final regs abandoned the exclusive activities test or list. Um, you know, one of the things that came out in the hearing in Washington, I think universally, was that's unworkable, it's unmanageable, it doesn't take into account uh, changes in technology or advancement. And so there's no way we could have a, a kind of a stagnant list of activities where this works but that doesn't. Uh, so the final regulations got rid of that, has a little more workable or flexible approach, in most cases, they provide definitions and then examples, but they're not exclusive, uh, giving, giving you know, people like Ryan and Angela and Mike the ability to, to issue opinions and, and not uh, be too, too worried about what's, what's behind those. Um, specific activities that were included and maybe not addressed in the proposed regulations, uh, liquefaction and regasification is included. Uh, propane, uh, transportation and sale at the retail level of propane is, is now included. Uh, One of my favorites were the the non-operating interests in oil and gas, the royalties, the net profits interests. Uh, Those have been around in MLPs for 30-plus years. Uh, With the exception of production payments, uh, the non-operating interests are also included. And then we had some rules for blending, additization, and a couple areas where where there's going to be reservation for further comment. Uh, The other big issue, and I know I think Ryan and Angela are going to talk about, is... Uh, the separate definitions and/ or applications of processing and refining, I think that was
0: another marked improvement over the proposed regulations. okay, Angela, what about uh, processing and uh, refining how did How did we do there?
2: Um, I think we did we did well
3: <coughs> I, I think uh, one way to put it is that the IRS gave us as much of the substantive outcome that we were asking for as they possibly could without throwing out. Their way of thinking about it, they they had kind of an approach to to refining and processing. They, they, they several things we complained about, and and they changed. So they had a fuel bias, and so essentially, if you were doing something in refining of crude oil and it was making a fuel, you were okay. And if it was making any other refined product that wasn't a fuel, that would not would not have worked under the proposed regs. They got rid of the fuel bias. They got rid of a, a few kind of arbitrary uh, additional rules got rid of a uh, concept that said that you it wasn't refining or processing if you had a physical or chemical change so we convinced them that virtually all refining and processing involved physical and chemical changes so there were um, it was an educational process they they did get rid of those things but they still uh... in their mind they were they they were entirely hung up on trying to d- distinguish between refining and processing on the one hand which can be good and evil manufacturing which can't be in an MLP and it's like so it was it was part of the educational process was explaining to them that you know gasoline is a manufacturing process and so um... anyway we we ended up in a good spot they 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 still uh, a lot of commenters wanted a single standard for processing and refining that, uh, that would apply to every product so if we came up with a general way of knowing what something if if an activity was processing and you could do that kind of activity to oil and gas you could do that kind of activity to a hard mineral you could do that kind of activity to a to 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 timber Um, that would actually make sense Um, they didn't go that far like I said they they tried to give us they tried to address specific requests and comments um, but still with very uh specific rules for specific industries. So timber has a very, very restrictive rule. Um, you can basically do nothing other than uh change its shape. If you if you try and break it down at all, then that's no longer refining and processing. Uh hard minerals, so one of the interesting things is uh we, we got to a very good answer on refining and processing for oil and gas and crude uh natural gas and crude oil. Uh basically we got them to agree that Anything that is currently produced in a refinery, you can you can mix and match and and start wherever you want in that process as long as you still end up with something that is made in a crude oil refinery, you're good. And they referenced the EIA; they they borrowed from a list from the EIA to, to decide what what those products were. You can get virtually all of those things also starting from coal through gasification and and uh, and uh, fischer tropes and so I mean there's there are processes that you can that you can use to coal but coal they say no no that's a, that's a that's a hard mineral so the oil and gas rules don't apply to that you have to apply the the hard mineral rules and they're much more restrictive they're not as bad as timber but they're still more restrictive so that's that's a, a problem still so one of the there are more winners than losers sun coke is a coking uh... is, a, is an MLP that cokes coal and it is clearly something that is purification of the coal, ending up with a purer carbon. I don't think there's anyone that disagrees that it qualified under the rules prior to the final regs, and in the final regs, it's it's kind of specifically excluded. So there are definitely problems with the the final regs, but on the other hand, there were winners. Um, most of the things that our midstream MLPs do were were fully um, kind of blessed under the final regs, and perhaps the biggest turn from the IRS is example 1 to the proposed <laughs> regulations said that the that the cracking <laughs> steam cracking of ethane into ethylene was not qualifying income in the proposed regs and when you run the red line of the proposed to the final that sentence says steam cracking of of ethane into ethylene is not scratched out so it is qualifying income that was a uh, that was a big change. That mm-hmm. took that took a lot of effort on behalf of the industry and specific taxpayers, and roughly 75 of their investors with wonderful comment letters. Some of them looked like they could have been on, done on on Twitter, uh, in all caps. Some of them,
2: <laughs> um,
3: so some were more thoughtful. Some were just, "You are evil people. Why would you do this to me? You've, you know, I'm like, I can't send my kids to college now." So they were there were all sorts of comments. And yeah,
1: everything from, from unsophisticated mm-hmm. investors to very scientific people yes. explaining chemical processes.
3: And, and we
2: joke about it but it really, it really is a huge deal when, when you've relied on <clears throat> in this case an IRS ruling. <coughs> the law has not changed and, and they've gone in with regs and, and essentially revoked that ruling.
3: Yeah, I would also say that there were several letters from, from congressional delegations yes. saying yes. What, what do you mean you're changing your mind? Can't change your mind on my taxpayers.
0: Yeah, so.
1: pretty much all the Republicans on the uh, House Ways and Means Committee signed a letter.
0: So, um, uh, who that had prior favorable letter rulings didn't do so well in the final regulations?
3: Uh, methanol, uh, the methanol industry, uh, there were several PLRs in that area that didn't turn out so well under the final regulations. Um, there were some, some timber activities, there were probably some. Uh, resin coated sand type activities that uh... so there, there are some things that they have given PLRs on that, that don't fit under the under the final regulations I think, you have any others in mind Mike?
1: No,
0: no, no. no.
3: Those, are all, those are the only ones that jump out at me.
1: And those people will have a ten year transition period. They have period. a ten
3: year transition period. Um, so ten years to, ten years to do their MLP or continue in their MLP and then figure out uh... figure out what to do after that. Although most, most of the things uh that were changed, I I think that I think there there were some PLRs that had not been acted on. So I'm not I'm not entirely sure how many of them were are relevant.
0: Right. So so Greg, I think Ryan already touched on this a bit, but if I'm a, I've got a, a uh um, a oil pipeline or refined products pipeline that's my main business, how much did I care about these uh these regulations?
4: N- not much. I mean <coughs>
0: Uh, again, if you have, you know, to,
4: to access the public market to go public, you need a will-level opinion generally from your law firm. And, you know, I think as, as many on this panel would, would say, you know, if it's right down the middle of the fairway type activity, you're not asking the IRS that question anyway. There's no need to ask a question you already know the answer to. So uh, straightforward, to, you know, throughput type agreement, midstream pipelines, I don't th- those weren't going in for PLRs in the first place, uh, and the law hasn't changed from before the proposed regs to today. So for, for the mass amount of the market, I think it's business as usual. It's the ancillary. Uh, a lot of it were some of the activities that I think the market was trying to push into the MLP. You know, there's a lot of activity around timber, um, seeing if some of that activity could qualify as an MLP. As Ryan said, that didn't end up on the right side of the, uh, of the tracks on this one. But uh, So for the majority of the industry, not much has changed, uh, but there are ancillary issues for most all MLPs that they were looking at these regulations to see how it turned out.
0: Anybody have any final words about qualifying income before we turn to tax reform?
3: Qualifying income is good. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Okay, um, uh, Mary. There's a lot of been a lot of talk about uh, tax reform. Uh, what do you see as the prospects for tax reform and how uh, how MLPs will um, uh, come through it?
1: Well. Um- there certainly is a lot of talk about tax reform. Um, it's a big item on both the congressional and the administration agendas. Um, however, like um, many, um, especially presidential ambitions, it's proving um, to be a little slower going than had been hoped. Um, the original plan was that they would pass a, a reconciliation bill, which is um, budget reconciliation bills are, are non um, um um, yeah, sorry, blanked on the word, can't be filibustered. So they're used for things that you want to, to get through where only one party is really agreeing. So the, the idea was that they would pass two reconciliation bills, one for the um, 2017 budget and one for the 2018 budget. And the first one would uh, do the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and that was important for tax reform because... Um, it would um, eliminate some of the revenue-raising provisions of the Affordable Care Act, and those revenues would no longer be in the baseline, which would mean that you would have um, a lower amount of revenue to make up um, if you had any revenue loss from tax reform. Um, and then, and then after that, there would be a reconciliation bill doing tax reform. Um, Things are moving, I think, a little slower than everybody had, um, had anticipated, and right now I'm seeing the odds of a uh, comprehensive tax reform actually passing at about 50%. Um, the, uh, the action is has, um, started in the House, which is the uh, constitutionally the originator of revenue bills. Um, the House Ways and Means Committee has been um, working since the new Congress convened um, to produce a tax reform proposal which would be based on the house republicans blueprint that um, that was that came out um, during the last congress and um, what one of the main features of the, the blueprint um, that is being relied on to offset any losses from, um, from tax reform from lowering the rates is, um, I'm sure you've all heard about this, is border adjustability. It's the idea that, um, you would tax, um, anything coming into the U.S., you would not tax anything going out of the U.S. So people who rely on imported goods, um, for their manufacturing or, or their sales would, um, would be out of luck. This has provoked tremendous controversy. Um, it has split the Republican Party down the middle. A lot of, um, Um, division between the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans, because the Senate Republicans generally don't like the idea. Um, Huge lobbying coalitions have sprung up on both sides of the issue. Um, You you have uh, department stores, people that um, use a lot of imported goods in their manufacturing um, on one side, and um, you have the people who um, who would not be affected and would benefit from tax reform on the other side. And... So a lot of money is being spent on lobbyists on this issue, and it's um, it's uncertain how it'll turn out at this point. And if um, border adjustability is not accepted, um, it's going to be hard to find enough revenue to achieve the rate lowering that, that they would like. Um, as far as MLPs are concerned, um, the House Blueprint um, generally continued pass-throughs, and um, it had a special tax rate for... Um, Um, investors and pass-throughs for their income. The idea was if you're going to lower the corporate rate to 15% or 20% um, but have the individual rate at 33%, then you're going to have um, individuals who are receiving business income from pass-throughs and they're going to, to lose all those corporate deductions that were thrown away to get the corporate rate down to 15 or 20%, but they're not going to get that corporate rate. They're going to pay at the individual rate. And that hardly seemed fair, um, particularly in a country where a large portion of businesses, and especially small businesses, are pass-through entities. So the idea is that we you, you would have an intermediate rate for um, owners of pass-through entities of, of 25%. Um, that has proven to be a bit troublesome as well as they wrestle with the idea of how you prevent abuse of that by having people who should be taxes employees um, reroute their affairs so that they're, they're treated as partners and partnerships and and can pay the lower pass-through rate um... rather than the um, the higher individual rate um, the, the other thing about the, the pass-through provision was that the House blueprint was um, more of an outline. There was, there's no legislative language, and so it talks about mainly helping small businesses when it talks about pass-throughs, and so it doesn't make clear whether they, um, MLPs would get that pass-through rate or not. We, we kind of assume that they would, but um, we don't really have anything in writing to go on. Um, the Ways and Means Committee had some task forces that got together earlier in the year to, to discuss various areas of the law, um, and there was um, there were quotes in the press by Kenny Marchand, a Congressman from Texas, who has been very supportive on MLPs, saying that MLPs would be okay. So that that is some reassurance that um, they do not intend to eliminate MLPs under the um, the uh, House blueprint. Um, However, we don't know um, whether he was referring to just energy MLPs. The the problem is that um, a few years ago when Congressman Camp um, put out his tax reform proposal, it covered the natural resource MLPs but, um, but not other types of MLP income like real estate, interest, and dividends, and there are some MLPs that would be affected by that. Um, a lot of the House blueprint does draw from the CAMP proposal. We don't know at this point whether that is one of the things that would be drawn from the CAMP proposal as well. Um, so at this point, we, we think on the House side that MLPs are probably okay, but we, we don't know the extent of that. And we don't know exactly um, how the um, pass-through tax would work for them. Um, there, there are some other things in the bill that, that obviously could affect MLPs, even if, if they the 7704 is preserved intact. Um, one of the biggest um, question marks, I think, is just how low the corporate rate will be in relation to the rate that, um, that partners and, and, or other owners of pass-through entities will have to pay. If there's a big gap in the corporate rate that could, um, between the corporate rate and the pass-through rate, that could make MLPs less attractive um, for companies and for investors. Um, There are other things that that could affect MLPs depending on how they come out. Um, The changing um, depreciation to immediate expensing – the, uh, the the blueprint would eliminate um, interest deductions, which is another area of controversy that, that's slowing the bill down. So there are a lot of things in the mix, and, and we really won't know how it will all shake out for MLPs um, when the final bill gets issued. Um, but we are cautiously optimistic that, that at least they don't have um, MLPs targeted in the gun sites as something they want to eliminate. Um, originally, the idea Mayor. had... Yeah,
3: on on right. the, the, even if they lower corporate rates, and there, there are a couple different schools of thought, we've heard people worry about, oh, if you lower corporate rates, then our our corporation's going to be more beneficial. I don't know if you're going to talk about this more.
5: I was going to try to cover that. Yeah,
3: Go Go why don't you. Yeah. Why don't yeah. you <coughs> no,
2: that, I'll jump you in. Right, I, but, yeah. yeah. um,
5: just because we're seeing that sort of some of our clients are beginning to analyze that, um, and I'll, I'll harken back to what the original speaker today talked about on what happened back in the 80s, um, when that basically the upstream MLPs went out of existence and all the midstream MLPs started being more proficient, you're already seeing sort of that same trend line occurring just because of economic conditions right now. And when we look at comprehensive tax reform, I think the thing, you know, and as Mary suggested, you know, there's a lot of politics going on and it's probably pretty difficult to get something done, but I lived long enough to be around when the 86 reform act was going on and it's kind of a similar time frame right now. And, um, the other essence of it, you know, when we, we talk about the border adjustment tax, um, from a policy perspective, all they're trying to do is harken back to moving our system away from an income tax system to a consumption tax system. So I know there's a lot of banter back and forth in Washington about the border adjustment tax being, you know, something that would be really negative to certain industries. But what the economists were trying to do is move us more down the path of going to a consumption tax. Uh, similar to other countries in the world, but other countries in the world don't use a cash a dis whatever they call it the cash flow tax. They use a value added tax, and and most of the other developing OECD countries have used a VAT, and they've raised a VAT and taxed consumption so that they could r- lower income tax rates. And that's part of why our rates are higher than everyone else in the world right now, and part of the reason that we haven't have inversion. So you know, there's other elements of this. And, you know, fighting inversions and getting the corporate tax rate down is really important from a comprehensive tax reform perspective. But the other thing that I, some, of the, some of the companies in the industry are looking at, because we've already had midstream MLPs that have converted to C-Corp form, and this choice of entity um, type of discussion will come up again. And I think even when we talked about some of the things we were talking about going on with regulations, we have to understand that MLPs are just a tax deferral structure and that it's an exception that got carved out for the natural resource industry back in the 80s because there were a lot of other businesses that were MOPs and they carved it out just for oil and gas. Um, So it's really an exception and it creates tax deferral for investors. But if we do get synchronization and comprehensive tax reform where the corporate rate and the individual rates start getting closer together and when you get full expensing, you know, one of the other things that's included in the House Blueprint is you get full expensing and and it's kind of the inverse of what the Senate's looking at, but then you also lose the interest deduction. So the impact of those rate changes and the whole tax base changing, if it did in fact occur, might change the capital markets in such a way to where it might be more efficient for MLPs not to operate as partnerships but to operate back into C-Corp form uh, just from a cost of capital perspective. And you've seen several investment banks already come out making some comments that there's a premium in C-Corp stock that's not present in MLP. So from an investor perspective, their tax ramifications may not be that negative, but I, I'm just suggesting that if, 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 and when we did actually get comprehensive tax reform, if there was more synchronization between what pass throughs and corpse were seeing, it might be a more efficient capital structure to move back into corporate form.
3: I think one, on that, on that Ted, there's one thing about it. What the new rates provide can also be changed and so what what some people are are saying is look there might be a short window where there's essentially uh, less benefit to be in the partnership structure although i think if if you just apply the blueprint theory, um, the the actual uh, once you just crank it out it's it's still marginally it's still marginally better to be in the partnership structure than to be in a corporation structure subject to Things that we can't control, but just if you right. take the blueprint, it, it's still better to be in a partnership. Um, but if it if it tweaked and and went upside down, and and there there was you know, there it looked it looked like oh this year it actually might be better to be in in a corporate structure. Um, I think you'd see a lot of people really not inclined to do that because if Congress changes in two years, four years, six years, and there's it's a wave election, and they they come in and say we don't know what those crazy republicans were doing trying to lower that corporate rate let's jack that thing up to 75% <laughs> <laughs> once you once you go into the corp there's no getting back out and right. so i, I think there will be a lot of people who look at that and say that's tempting short term but until we see this lasting a decade it's yeah. it's a risky move
5: so i'm i'm a, just suggesting cost s- cost. sort of similar what mary yeah, was saying a though tax
1: cost and just the logistical cost to, right to make absolutely an
5: but the issue is if we do get comprehensive tax reform, there's going to be winners and losers, and there will be fairly fundamental change, and tax folks will spend a lot of time doing that analysis. Right. And, and there, there, there are a lot d-
1: of moving parts. So <laughs> Absolutely. It's, uh, it depends so much on what each of those moving parts turns and out it's to be. And it's mean. certainly
5: not time to start that process yet because we don't know what's going to happen.
3: But I, the, I would add – I mean, that's one of the reasons why people are so scared of letting there be a VAT in the U.S. is that, uh, look, okay, so the trade-off is we'll lower the rates and we'll put in place this value-added tax as a separate tax. Well, the way our politicians work, that'll work for about a year, and then they'll say, hey, those income tax rates are sure pretty low now. Why don't we jack those up? So now we've got a VAT. They're not going to lower that. They're just going to start raising back up the the, the income tax rates, right? So then you end up just That's growing cool. the revenue, growing the revenue and more taxes, more taxes. So that I think that it all kind of plays in absolutely.
1: One thing I would add about the difference between now and, and nineteen eighty six was there was a very strong presidential endorsement right. in, in nineteen eighty six. And um he put his Treasury experts to work helping the process through. Um I think one of the problems that the, the con that Republicans in Congress are having right now is Trump has not really taken a firm position particularly on the border adjustability issue. He's he's made it clear that he wants tax reform and he he wants it to be great and to um, to help the middle class. He phenomenal. has not said how they That's should huge. do that and what he thinks about border adjustability. Well, it's like so
5: much of the other communication there just aren't enough
0: words. <laughs> 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 Uh, Mary, the uh, the United Airlines case uh, uh, really kind of upended what we thought we knew about uh, uh, rate allowances the in, 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 or tax allowances in pipeline rates. Uh, what's uh, what's the latest on what FERC is doing about that?
1: Well, um, back in December, FERC issued a notice of inquiry, um, asking in response to the to the United Airlines decision for people to um, submit comments on, on how to um, avoid a double recovery of, of income tax if MLPs were provided with a tax allowance. Um, the, the theory um, that prevailed in the United Airlines tax was because um, um, income taxes for the investor are already built into the um, DC discounted cash flow equation um, to provide a tax allowance for um, pass-through investors on top of that was, was a double benefit. Um, the, um, the comments are due on March 8th. Um, MLPA has, been, has had a working group um, consisting of um, tax people from several um, companies and um, FERC experts from some of the companies. And we are putting together comments, um, not very technical ones, um, more um, stressing the benefits of MLPs and the importance of um, of MLPs to building out en- energy infrastructure and how the the tax allowance figures into that. Um, the pipeline associations are are um, submitting very detailed comments um, by experts showing that um, there really isn't um, a double recovery if you if you look at the way the um, the uh the cash flows and work um, and um, so we are are very so we will submit those on um, March 8th and then there will be a response period with a deadline on responses until April um, we're not sure what what uh FERC will do at at this point um, they are down to two commissioners um, we need uh, they need uh at least one more commissioner would even have a quorum, and, and they need to have three commissioners appointed eventually. Um, our, our hope is that uh, FERC will take the advice that, that we in the pipeline associations give it and um, go back to the court and, and say, um, look, here is the evidence that there is no double recovery, and so we're going to continue the tax allowance as is. Um, but that may take a while to happen um, with the, com- the commission at this point being um, very underpopulated.
3: Mary, do you want to say a word about how big of a deal the tax allowances are? I mean, in, in most most
1: That's, yeah, yeah. The, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, um, the impact on MLPs if, if the ruling stands and and the tax allowance is reduced or eliminated um, for a lot of MLPs wouldn't make a big difference. Um, the more recent um, acquisitions or, um, or um, Pipeline constructions by MLPs, especially, tend to be negotiated rates or, or competitive rates and, and aren't set by cost of service rate making. So there's a, a pretty big chunk of MLPs that wouldn't really be affected at all. Um, it, and then there are some MLPs which are already under-earning their rate, and so it wouldn't um, really matter much to them. They still would be able to make a case for a, a, big, a bigger rate. It would only affect MLPs that are subject to the cost of service rate-making that, that have, um, we think it would be prospective, it wouldn't be retroactive, so that would have cases coming up. Um, so there would be some pact on some MLPs, but we don't believe it would be a huge blow to the industry.
0: The uh, bipartisan budget act, enacted as part of the um, uh, keep the government from shutting down a year ago, is going to start collecting, uh, doing audits uh, of partnerships, and potentially collecting the tax from the partnership. Um, uh, if, if we can't push it out, uh, what's the latest on uh, on the regulations and uh, I- implementing that, uh, Mary?
1: Um well the regulations have come out. Um I will leave it to the uh to the people who have spent hours poring over them to comment on them. I think um, the
3: I think the expert in the room is Mike Bresson. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. right, okay. All right. Well yeah. of course right right. We well, all want to we, we all want to push those um uh, push the taxes out. Right. If the IRS comes and presents you with a tax bill, <laughs> we want to be able to push right. the push the taxes out to the to our unit holders.
1: The, the, right? the first thing that happened was that um the joint Ta- Committee on Taxation, which is does the revenue estimates and and um, does the technical staffing for all tax bills in Congress, came out with a summary of the um, the BBA, which said basically that um, yeah you can you can push the taxes out, but you can only push them up one tier. So um, in a multi-tiered partnership, which most MLPs are and and a lot of other big partnerships are, um, the push out really doesn't get you very far. Um, we really objected to this because it, it would make the push-out use, useless for MLPs and uh, we don't believe that it was the, what um, Congress intended when it put in the, those provisions in the BBA. So um, MLPA's lobbyists have worked on a technical correction that would clarify that, that, the, ML, that the push-out does indeed go to all tiers. Um, we actually were able to get that included in a technical corrections bill that was introduced at the end of last year. Of course, that didn't go anywhere because Congress was ending, Um, but we're hopeful that there will be a technical corrections bill this year and and that our provision will be carried forward in it.
3: I think having it in there was at least a a mini victory.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think it it sort of indicated to Treasury that uh, this was what Congress's real intent was.
3: And the reason why I was teasing Mike is that on the same day the final regs on the qualifying income came out, there were proposed regs on how to implement the, the BBA, and they were about that thick. And uh, Mike happened to be giving a speech on the topic that day at lunch. So he had a lot of reading. <laughs> that was a that, fun night. We had a lot of reading. <laughs> and then the regulations were yanked. They were, they were <laughs> the three caught three up in the Then they were yeah, yanked, yeah. Good, yeah. But so for those of us right. who didn't have time to read them, we were pretty happy. And, and
1: that yeah, that, that was like... How many very dense pages? I yeah, do not two hundred plus. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Plus. Right, but those rules they will only apply when the when the IRS starts auditing uh, years that begin in 2018. So um, uh, there, there's a long time before you really have to worry about them. But uh, you know, 2018 is going to be here soon, and they're very technical rules. So the IRS has a lot of work to do, and we'd love to get those technical corrections passed sometime here, so the IRS can actually write regulations that implement what the law is really going to be. That would be good. Yeah. Are there uh, any questions,
4: Ethan? Hey, good morning guys. Uh, Tom Edelman said this morning that he thought the KMI and One Oak transactions were horrific and probably <laughs> going to be outlawed <laughs> because they were a. I, I, a I, did, I did note the word horrific. Yeah, <laughs> <Wow>. and uh, <laughs> and you know a breach of the fiduciary duty to limited partners. Um, that may be more than anyone here wants to comment on but i'll i 'll ask the question nonetheless what What do you think about that statement and and uh, were lps uh, abused improperly in either one of these transactions or the other simplification deals that have happened
3: maybe we don 't talk about the, the any deal specifically, but in in theory i mean the the, the good thing about those about those transactions if there's if there 's some reason that it 's a, a good thing is that um, it, it was designed to kind of reset the capital and and look for what was better for the business as a whole in the long term and in in doing that, there are winners and losers in 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 every transaction there are to some degree winners and losers and uh, we got a lot of questions about those types of transactions as to how how people should view them and I think that it's interesting. Most most investment bankers their their fairness opinions essentially ignore taxes, and and so it's it's just like right at the top that hey this is economically fair, but we're not tax people, so you know we're not we're not talking about taxes. Um, so it's interesting that in, in these deals there's a bunch of taxes that get paid. They don't get paid by the by the company. They get paid by those unit holders, and so it's fair to the unit holders. And but it. They have a current tax bill that then their current tax bill provides a benefit to the entity for the long term. Now, they have a current tax bill. They own the entity in the long run. So the theory is that it's better for them uh, to pay the tax now and have less tax on their income in the future. All that has to go into weighing whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. In some deals, there's enough cash to pay the tax. In some deals, there's not enough cash to pay the tax, so you're actually saying, "Hey, unit holders, pay this tax for the benefit of us all going forward." But uh, you know, hopefully, they weren't a breach of any fiduciary duties. Yeah, and I think those things were all weighed appropriately. And the last point
4: I think Ryan made is a good one. These are not a one-size-fits-all type of transaction. There are many different ways to do this. Uh, You can have all cash, all equity, cash and equity, Um, and and it's not kind of a broad. I wouldn't say you'd rubber stamp it and say this is uh, a decision that makes sense for this exact type of company. I mean, it's it's really a, a taxpayer by taxpayer type analysis to to see whether it makes sense for the whole. So, as far as a broad trend, I, I mean, I, I still think you're looking at this, and I think everybody's had conversations on a one-off basis with a number of clients. Does this make sense? Um, but it but it really is not a one-size-fits-all type trend.
3: KMI's feels worse than everyone else because they did it at a time when their their units were trading at near all-time highs, right? There, there have been several where they were done where most of the investors actually had a loss. Right. So it's a taxable transaction, but if they were trading at less than where most people bought in, it was taxable and a loss. And so you didn't see uh, a, a year out, that day or a year out, the unit holders being as concerned. So.
1: Yeah, I think Kinder Morgan also had an unusually big impact because it had been around so long. So, um sure. There are a lot of investors who had depreciated their bases down very low, which you might not have in a, a younger MLP.
4: And when you have six to seven hundred thousand dollar unit, six seven hundred thousand unit holders, it makes a difference as well.
5: I just share two thoughts. Um, it gets back to what I said earlier. An MLP is just a tax deferral structure, so the investors were getting a tax deferred yield throughout the whole time they were taking the distributions out. So the fact that when you roll out of the structure, the tax deferral goes away is not a surprise, but it was a surprise to most of them when that occurred. So um, it is what it is. But the other thing I would share is part of the reason that transaction occurred is because MLPs are basically yield-traded investments. And in order for a large MLP to continue to pay that kind of yield, they have to continue to invest and it's basically consolidation play to continue to invest to produce that yield. And that's where this sort of capital markets type solution of what's the most efficient way to raise capital and then pay the yield to your investors uh, starts happening. So it, it, there are other companies that have had to make that change as well. The other thing that we've seen in the industry recently, because, especially in the upstream sector, because they got highly leveraged, is it's not a very good structure to be in if you're going to create COD income. So it's that choice of entity type structure thing. And all I would say is people are going to admire this from time to time. But my reaction is it's all about what the tax structure looks like at that moment in time and how you produce a yield. And the other punchline for me, because I remember this from the 80s, when the Fed starts raising interest rates and interest rates start going up, the required yield is going to have to increase as well. And that's going to – MLP yield will, you know, be – evaluated it across other parts of the uh, the other investments so my reaction is you might see you know if it's too difficult to produce that yield and we've seen that change over time then you know then it becomes more efficient to be in a different structure
1: and, so and the IDRs are a factor, too, absolutely, because, because you not only have to produce that extra yield, you have to produce it for the GP as well as for the LPs. Right. And so when you get up into the higher splits, that gets higher so and higher. So it works smaller.
5: great until you get too big sometimes. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> all right, I think we've run over our time. Uh, thank you all very much for your attention.